0: From the Political Science
1: Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. One of my favorite things about teaching at UW is uh, every morning walking up Bascom Hill to North Hall.
2: There was also something
0: about this department that was really wonderful. I felt like I was joining a place where the kind of work that I did would be valued and respected.
1: People were pleasant and thoughtful and really intellectually. In those instances, I'm always reading from the Badgers. This. 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 This is 1050 Bascom. podcast, we're happy to have Robert Bob Barnett, a UW-Madison alum and senior partner at the firm Williams & Connolly. In his multifaceted legal and political career, Bob has worked with many recent U.S. presidents including Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, and played a pivotal role on 10 presidential campaigns. Bob has served as a debate advisor for eight Democratic presidential campaigns, including Hillary Clinton. Here, in our world of poli-sci UW-Madison, Bob is a highly distinguished member of our Board of Visitors. Bob grew up in Waukegan, Illinois, and came to Wisconsin in the late 60s, graduating with a degree in history and English in 1968. While here, he met his wife, another widely revered and well-known member of our Board of Visitors, Rita Braver, who's enjoyed an accomplished career as a journalist and producer at CBS News. We'll ask Bob about his time at UW in the late 60s, certainly a politically charged time on campus, and talk to him about how his career unfolded and flourished over the last several decades. We're curious too about Bob's take on our contemporary political world, especially in the context of his front row seat to several decades of American politics. Bob, it is such a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Nice to be here, nice to be in Madison. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about
1: your initial journey to UW Madison. Why'd you pick UW as an undergrad?
2: I looked at a lot of schools. I looked at private schools, I looked at public universities. I had some friends here and I came to visit in May. Mm-hmm. If you come to Madison in May, you come to Madison for school in September. Yeah. But then comes February. Yeah. And as I reminisce on my time here, I remember walking up Bascom Hill, mm-hmm. 150 degrees below zero, <laughs> yeah. to a lecture hall where at the same time 350 frozen noses Mm -hmm. unfroze (laughs) and that sound of 350 people sniffing is something (laughs) you can never get out of your mind. One of my treasured memories of Madison.
1: Yeah, yeah. Running noses and sniffing. Yeah, I can only imagine, especially in some of these Older uh, lecture halls where yeah. everything just echoes and you can hear everything but the professor speaking.
2: Sometimes I wake up screaming, dreaming about it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, with that, tell us about Madison in the late sixties.
2: Well, it was a hotbed of
1: Vietnam mm-hmm. protests. Dow Chemical, Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It was truly an exciting place, but also a challenging place. I witnessed the the best book about this, mm-hmm. if. Your listeners have not read it as David Marinus's fabulous book called They Marched into Sunlight, which mm-hmm. is the story of Madison and Vietnam mm. in October of 1967, the war at home and the war abroad. Sure. And there's related in there an incident attributed to me where we were standing outside the Union Theater mm-hmm. and there was a faculty meeting and some leader of the students raised his hand and said let's vote to kill the faculty. And it carried. That's what we faced in the late 60s. Craziness, passion, Mm -hmm. commitment, Mm -hmm. but irresponsibility. And uh, you woke up and you smelled tear gas some days. (laughs) And I remember waking up one morning when they'd placed, I forget what the number was, 10,000 crosses all up and down Bascom, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. to reflect on those who'd been killed in the conflict. And so it was a time of great tension. People rightly say it's a time of great tension now. It was a different kind of tension then, but it was it was tense. And mm-hmm. the University of Wisconsin, at least in the world of academia, was right in the middle of it. And there was, uh, uh, Ted Kennedy came mm-hmm. you, to speak. Uh, you would think that That would be pretty well received by the very liberal student body then at the University of Wisconsin. And he wasn't allowed to speak. People shouted him down, talk about the war. This was Ted Kennedy, who was Mm -hmm. probably one of the most vocal Mm anti-war critics. And they wouldn't even listen to him. So it was a a tough, intense time. But it was an inspirational time and a learning time. I met people who've been lifelong friends and that's mm-hmm. to be treasured met my wife October 15th 1967 <laughs> that story is also in that book actually okay. wow. uh, so it was a it was a great time to be here for those 4 years
1: and were you at this time interested in politics outside of your english and history majors or had you been interested in politics before you entered college i had wasn't that
2: interested in politics really i kind of thought i'd go back to Waukegan and be a high school english teacher i mm-hmm. Once I met Rita, it was seriously doubtful I would return to Waukegan and be a high school English teacher. I think that uh, probably I was more exposed to politics here than I'd been before. I wasn't, I was aware, I was hopefully well-read, but I wasn't politically committed. I wasn't someone who was an active leader of demonstrations or anything like that. But during the time here, both from the personal experiences that you had with the protest and the the people who came to speak, but also through the classes that I took, not so much English, but more history, Mm -hmm. um, you you tended to become more politically aware. You couldn't go through four years here. It would be very hard to go through four years here Mm -hmm. in the 60s without becoming more politically aware. Mm -hmm.
1: Definitely. And speaking of Rita, really quickly, I hear that there's an interesting story about your first date. Was that the
2: law school? Is that right? Well, no, we we went on a study date. And my secret place to study was the lecture rooms at the law school because there were no friends there and so you didn't get distracted Distracted. and on our first date i asked her to marry me (laughs) she told me no and i didn't ask again for five years because i don't take rejection well (laughs) five years later i asked and then she said yes wow but i mean that's a a true story that's a true story
1: that's very cool what was your initial plan after graduating
2: as I say, become a high school English Mm -hmm. teacher. But Mm -hmm. then I said I investigated law school and I came to the view that a legal education, whatever I ended up doing, would be valuable because it teaches you to research. It teaches you to write Mm -hmm. and it teaches you. Some people would call it communicate. I'd call it advocate. Mm -hmm. And those were skills that were applicable in a lot of contexts. Some people I went to law school with went on to go to law firms. Others taught. Mm-hmm. Others went in government. Mm-hmm. Others did uh, public policy things. Others went to uh, pro bono type, sure. public defenders types activities. Um, many went into business. So it was at that time an education that was valuable and could be used in a wide variety of contexts. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you tell students that come up to you today that say, I'm interested in law school. I studied poli sci. Do you think...
2: I th- I'm a big believer in legal education mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. as I say those reasons, it right? teaches it teaches skills that will be applicable and useful in a whole bunch of contexts mm-hmm. and if you go to a law school good law school and you f- do well it opens a lot of avenues definitely and then from there I saw I didn't know anything about clerkships judicial mm-hmm, clerkships mm-hmm. but I certainly learned about them in law school And I was fortunate enough to get two of the very best dream clerkships one could get, one with uh, Judge John Minor Wisdom on the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans Mm -hmm. and one with Justice Byron White on the Supreme Court. Those were incomparable experiences. How did those come about? Uh, You apply and you hope and you get recommendations. Mm -hmm. Uh, No magic to it. And then I wanted to really do something in the legislative branch. So I applied to about 10 senators and Got a few offers and ended up working for Walter Mondale, who then was the senior senator from Minnesota and spent two years there. Uh, Big believer in Hill jobs, but two years is a good thing Mm -hmm. unless you want to make it a career Mm -hmm. and left, went to the law firm. But then two years later, he was picked by Jimmy Carter to be the vice presidential nominee and all of us who had worked for him, or a lot of us who had worked for him, left our jobs, moved to Atlanta where Mm -hmm. the campaign was, and we overnight became the Mondale campaign.
1: What was that like?
2: Uh, It was a great experience. My first experience in national politics, certainly at the highest level. And we wrote speeches and we did briefing memos and we prepared him for what was then the first vice presidential debate in history, Dol Mondale, and the first debate of any kind since 1960, Kennedy and Nixon, they'd been non-existent since then, and they were Mm -hmm. revitalized in 76, and now they've become a tradition of the American political system.
1: How has it changed after working with this latest election with Hillary Clinton and first working with a campaign of Walter Mondale, especially against um, Ronald Reagan, who is known as a very great communicator and campaigner? What sorts of things stood out to you then that have changed now or what sorts of things stand out to you now that didn't stand out to you? Well, then? it's
2: more of a media circus mm-hmm. now. I mean, there's a beer tent and there's <laughs> all these different booths around it. And it's like a circus for donors and media and hangers on. And it, it, it was a much smaller, much more intense thing back in the 70s than yeah. it is now. I think that's probably detracted. If it were up to me, I probably wouldn't even have an audience in these. Mm -hmm. I would have them be in a studio Mm -hmm. with the candidates and a moderator. Of course, this time we'll face enormous challenges because of the number of candidates on the Democratic side, similar to the challenges that the Republicans faced Mm -hmm. in 16. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that social media, specifically within media, has taken over the game. Yeah, uh, it didn't exist. Exactly. In the 70s. Right, right. So what does a debate prep look like? Can you give us kind of well, a It depends on the, the, the candidate. Yeah.
2: If you have someone like Jerry Ferraro, who was a three-term congresswoman from Queens with less experience on the national stage, mm-hmm. less absorption in all the issues, you have to prepare in one way. If you have somebody like uh, Hillary Clinton, who knows every issue back and forth, mm-hmm. it's a different prep. So what you have to do if you're part of the team is prepare and design a process and prepare the candidate in a way that's most helpful to them. It's not about you. It's about mm-hmm. them because, as one of our colleagues once says, when uh, when it's the night of the debate, the candidate goes on the stage and you go in the holding room, mm-hmm. and uh, they're the ones with uh, their reputation and their victory or defeat on the line. So what you try to do Mm -hmm. is help them fill their gaps, know the process, come up with potential answers, fit the format, because a lot of these people are very smart and they can tell you about almost any issue, but they can't necessarily do it in 30 seconds Mm -hmm. or 90 seconds. So you have to prepare for the format. And some people are better at the format than others. So each process is different and each one has to be tailored to the needs of the candidate
1: okay so i'm interested are you you sitting in a boardroom with hillary and some other people and all right hillary i'm bernie sanders uh let's start out here and you have your moderator and they pose a question and well, hillary no, went, like usually what usually you like? do
2: written materials okay. you do briefing books Every candidate's different, but yeah. as a general matter, you do briefing books, you sit around and you talk about the answers, okay. you sit at the table and you rehearse the answers, then you go to the podiums and you actually do generally 20-minute segments and then you talk about them and you repeat them. Mm-hmm. Then you graduate to full 90-minute practices mm-hmm. and you have someone playing the moderator, obviously, someone playing the Republican, the candidates mm-hmm. there playing him or herself, and you gradually work up to the full format so they're familiar. And if it's gonna be at night, you tend to do the rehearsals at night because you're tired and you have to get mm, ready for that. Okay. Also, you do it standing because most people don't stand at a podium for 90 minutes, yeah. but you have to do it. So you have to do it a few times gotcha. to get ready to do it. Okay. And there are all kinds of uh, tricks, and per, not tricks, procedures and ways to. Emphasize your answers. Topic sentences sure. are important. Most people only listen to the first two sentences, actually, of a ninety-second okay. answer. So you've got to put your points up front. Yeah, you've got to be sure you don't leave anything on the table. Again, mm-hmm. that's another ninety-minute discussion. But mm-hmm. it's a—it's uh, not scientific. It has mm-hmm. to be uh, done in the best interest of the candidate. And if you succeed, they win, and the polls.
1: I'm curious about how rehearsed, so I understand that it's rehearsed, but how organic the responses are on stage, as in uh, the question pops up while Hillary is in this debate, and does she go to, all right, this is the question that was asked, uh, so I'm going to answer B, or is it, okay, this is the general realm that I'm in, and we talked about these things, so I remember these are the points I need to hit.
2: Yeah, well, you rehearse, and a lot of it I wouldn't to pretend otherwise a lot of it is rehearsed in terms of how you address questions you have my wife actually had um a theory of exam answering <laughs> which she taught me which was especially beneficial okay. in undergraduate and in law school she used to call it the peas and carrots theory <laughs> of exam answering if you have peas and they ask you for carrots, give them peas, and call it carrots. And that's a lot of what you do in debates, too. If you have a point you want to make, you can't avoid the question. Mm -hmm. You can't go off and talk about baseball or something. Mm -hmm. But you can often, if you're glib and if you're sophisticated, you can take the question and without appearing to or actually ignore it, take it to where you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And a skilled debater will be able to do that seamlessly mm-hmm. and will get in the points that mm-hmm. he or she wants to make.
1: I mean, I definitely notice sometimes where I will see a politician attempting to do that. And essentially I see as, they're dodging the question again. And, and they're trying to bring it to something that they want to talk about while relating back to the original question, but they find themselves in a hole that, doesn't relate back to what they're... Yeah, well, the goal
2: is to not have you notice exactly. it. Okay. Some people are better at than others. Mm-hmm. But with practice and skill and experience, most people can get to where they want to go without avoiding the question mm-hmm. or, better yet, not appearing to avoid the question. Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, we talked about this debate prep. How has Donald Trump... I feel like he's just thrown a curveball into all of this. And how has that affected how you prep for debates, how you handle a political arena.
2: Well, Trump in the, we we haven't seen him debate since 16, obviously. Mm -hmm. I think by most fair measures, Hillary won all three debates overwhelmingly. It Mm -hmm. didn't matter, but Mm -hmm. in the end she, all the, not the call in to Fox polls, but the scientific polls all showed (laughs) that she overwhelmingly won. But again, as I say, it didn't change the outcome of the election. Trump, uh, first of all, got himself in the middle by mm-hmm. virtue of his polls, that was a big plus. He also you employed a technique that certainly none of the candidates I have ever worked with would I hope and believe ever apply which is calling people names and making fun of their appearance and generally demeaning people. Uh, that was obviously appealing to some
0: mm-hmm. and
2: it was uh, there was a base that that found that proper and found that convincing. Mm -hmm. So he employed his center position, his longtime experience on television Mm -hmm. because he was a host of a show and -hmm. and, uh, my sense was that wasn't totally scripted. And he learned how to go with the punches, if you will, in a uh, television context and his techniques of demeaning and belittling and criticizing. If you go back and look at those tapes, there wasn't a lot of substance. Mm -hmm. Some people, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, others I would argue tried, but when he started calling them Little Marco and Mm -hmm. Sleepy Jeb and whatever, that's what people focused on, and it's unfortunate, but he did prevail. And so whoever's going to debate him in 20, Mm -hmm. and we don't know who that will be, will have to be prepared for those techniques to be applied to them and come up with strategies, which is not easy on how to counter that without bringing yourself down to that level and appearing to be the same, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. hopefully whoever we nominate will want to be different.
1: Definitely. So this is a two part question. A, uh, were you as stunned as the rest of the American body in Trump's election? And B, having been front and center and basically in direct regular contact with Hillary Clinton, is there anything that you look back on in the campaign to say we could have bumped up something there or we could have adjusted this?
2: Well, I was completely stunned. Mm-hmm. I was in the friends and family room at the Javits Center, and we were all watching all the different monitors, and as the different states started falling away, I fell away and went back to the hotel because mm-hmm. it was incredibly demoralizing. I... Uh, I think we were beaten. I mean, we we made mistakes and there were people who didn't like my friend Hillary and and that's all fine. I think why we lost is simple. Uh, the Comey misconduct and mm-hmm. the Russians. Mm-hmm. I mean, when all said and done, a lot of factors went into it. We made mistakes. We should have been here, we should have been there. Yeah. We should have said this in the debate. Uh, She should have been, quote unquote, more likable. How you do that, it's hard to say. But I think ultimately what beat us was Comey and the Mm -hmm. Russians, and those Mm -hmm. were beyond our Mm -hmm. control. And I see very little being done to prevent those kind of things from happening in 20.
1: So with your experience and your expertise, how do you perceive Trump's presidency? As in, is he doing better than you thought in terms of policy? Is he holding on to his base well? Are you surprised by anything in his presidency other than... You know, what's cast around in the media quite a bit.
2: Well, he's engaged in a base presidency. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost everything he does Mm -hmm. appears to be aimed at solidifying and holding the base. I don't see a whole lot of effort to expand the range. We'll see if that works in 2020. I think the biggest harm has been creating what I call, I'm not unique in this, the new normal Mm -hmm. that my grandchildren watch how he behaves and glenn kessler who's hardly a liberal advocate at the washington post finding ten thousand lies over the course of these two years Mm -hmm. and my grandchildren watch that and what are they learning what are they seeing what are they what values are they seeing of the person with the highest office in the land that will take a while to repair Uh, america always survives and america always repairs but my hope is that it won't cause permanent damage i think that when you look at almost any area, look at foreign policy, nothing's happened with Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, our relationship with China is worse, not better. We've deeply harmed our relationship with Canada, with Mexico, with the UK. Um, I'm not sure that he's done anything. Despite it being the number one issue, I'm not sure he's accomplished anything with respect to immigration, which is an important issue and has to be solved, mm-hmm. but can only be solved in a bipartisan way. Sure. And screaming about building a wall is not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. The experts tell you that. And I, the tax, the tax cuts, I think we are now seeing, and front page articles just this week seem to demonstrate, didn't really help those people who it was said to help, but rather help People in the top one two percent. I think if uh, I think there's been nothing's been done about the critically important question of healthcare, other than trying to dismantle what Barack Obama put up. Largely, it seems because Barack Obama put it up, not because of what mm-hmm. it's what's wrong with it, and it does need fix and repair. But there's been no real bipartisan mm-hmm. effort to do that. And I can go on and on on every area. Yeah. But again, I look at it as someone who would have preferred a different candidate and would prefer that we look at some of these issues in a different way than the incumbent president does. Mm -hmm.
1: So yeah, I think this brings us to another great question. And first I'll ask it and then get a little background, I guess. Very direct. Will Trump be elected reelected, I should say, and what will it take for a candidate to defeat him? And this is to say you have done a lot of work uh, prepping candidates and and starting with campaigns um, from the onset. And I feel like most times uh, to get through the primaries and uh, be on your party's ticket, you need to resonate with your base, but then transition your arguments to a wider range of Americans once you're finally elected. Trump does not hasn't done that. He's resonated with his base and still heavily focuses on his base, continued today. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what does that look like? And I come back to the question of what will it be what will be needed for a twenty twenty candidate to defeat Trump in the yeah, past?
2: It's It's early, Mm -hmm. very hard to know. A lot's going to happen in 18 months. I think that we have to nominate someone who can go head-to-head with him and take and rebut the demeaning and the Mm name-calling and all that, not by doing the same thing, but by finding ways to mock it or deflect Mm it. I think we need to find someone who's not so far out of the mainstream that the... 10% in the middle that decides these elections will be turned off and either not show up or vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. I think that we have to not just take down and point out what Trump has done, but the candidate has to present an agenda, a realistic agenda Mm -hmm. that can be paid for, that people will support, that says to the voter, you have a choice here, Mm -hmm. and not just how you don't think well of him, but why you should be positively in favor of me. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the three things that the candidate will have to do. That's not easy, and it's hard to see which of the candidates will be most successful mm-hmm. at that. The The whole process, the whole primary process, the debates, the money race, uh, all the things that go in to prevailing and lasting throughout the primary process are tests and the Mm -hmm. press coverage every day. You have to avoid making some stupid mistake that the press will make hay with and Trump will go crazy over because he's Mm -hmm. got the biggest Mm -hmm. megaphone in the Mm -hmm. world. And so getting through that process is tiring and Mm -hmm. challenging and ultimately a lot of people say if you get through it, you deserve to be the candidate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's there are all these there's all these factors. Bernie ran before, so he has an enormous group of followers who will stay with him. Biden has run That's so much important Mm part. He's been vice president, been a longtime senator, and he's got a cadre of people. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about 20, 25 candidates, those pockets will stand you well because it won't take 50 percent to win. It might take. 19% 19% mm-hmm, to win. Mm-hmm. And if you come in with a preordained group, selected group, who will turn out at caucuses and primaries and who will support you and who will give you contributions, you got a big leg up. And uh, the more insurgent candidates, very some very attractive people, are going to have a harder time yeah. against the people who already have locked in a modicum of support.
1: Definitely. So we've talked about presidents. We've talked about politics, media, Let's put the last three years kind of in a historical perspective. Um, is American democracy in a precarious state? Is this a bump in the road? Is this, um, you know, the sky is falling? Are we somewhere in between?
2: Well, America's always survived, and America will survive the Donald Trump presidency. Um, I, I hark back to what I said earlier about the Vietnam era mm-hmm. and also the Watergate era, there was a lot of dissent and contention around Nixon and around uh, the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And we recovered and we went on and some people went to jail and other people were discredited and other Mm -hmm. people rose in their fame and honor by virtue of what they did during that period. And I think it'll be the same here. I think that there will be a, a new president and Hard to think it will be in the same mold because Trump is unique. And certainly if it's a Democrat, Mm it will be a very different mold. Mm -hmm. And it'll take a lot to repair the alliances I spoke about. It'll take a lot to bring back civil discord if that can even ever happen. It'll take a lot to find a way to have my grandchildren see the president as somebody explainable and admired. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's doable. And Mm -hmm. I hope it will be done sooner rather than later. But Mm -hmm. 2020 will tell.
1: So what about looking forward? What, if anything, would you suggest will need to happen before truth and evidence become center and partisanship and team loyalties are, you know, a little bit farther down the road? What you talked about your grandchildren, what does their voting landscape look like?
2: Well, what has happened is we have to have a different leadership that's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. That will change, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, I think it will change dramatically where we are right now. Mm -hmm. That's the short-term solution.
1: Yeah, okay. All right, Bob, so let's take a step back from the political discussion. You represent a number of great authors who top the Amazon and New York Times best book lists, including James Patterson, Michelle Obama, Bob Woodward, Mary Higgins Clark, George W. Bush, both Clintons. How does that work look different from uh, your work in a political realm?
2: Well, in a political realm, I'm not being a lawyer. In okay. that realm, I'm being a lawyer and I'm representing them. Depending on who they are, if they're established authors, it's one thing. If they're a first-time author, it's another thing. You generally help them develop the concept that they're seeking to sell. And unless you're someone like Michelle Obama, you have to have a proposal Mm -hmm. and you help them develop a written proposal. Mm -hmm. Then you try to identify from your knowledge and experience the target publishers and editors who might be interested. You pitch the proposal to them and seek interest. If they have interest, then you have meeting with Mm -hmm. your client and the team, the publicity people, the editorial people, the corporate people, the marketing people at the house. And then you either negotiate with one or two and make a deal or you have what's called a literary auction Mm -hmm. where they compete with each other Mm and you seek to uh, come to the the best result okay. then Uh, they go off and write the book. Uh, Some of them, I would say the majority of them ask me to look at the draft and make comments. I'm always happy to do that. I'm not a professional editor, but Mm -hmm. I think I know what people like to read and what sells. And then with most of the clients, I also, along with the in-house people, Mm -hmm. uh, help design the rollout. What's the first Ah, TV? What's the first print? What's the first podcast? What's the first radio? Where should you do appearances? And that's almost like a of sales and public relations function. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's, um, in both cases, I guess you're selling a product, but in the case of a book, it's very different than mm-hmm, selling a politician.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how the business works of, do you go to them or do they come to you? Um, have you had anyone come to you and you're like, uh, maybe let's Oh, talk I about... turn
2: down 100 for everyone okay, I do. Okay, <laughs> Yes. And do you uh, then uh, seek uh,
1: out um, authors rarely, or starting rarely. authors?
2: The only, I, rarely, rarely. Rarely. Uh, I'm blessed with, with many people coming to me. The big exception was you're probably too young to know the name Pat Summit, who was coach of the University of Tennessee. Lady Vols won eight national championships, okay. was the, the premier person in women's basketball. My dear niece Sarah played uh, both high school, one state championship in Illinois, and college basketball. So I got very interested in women's basketball. And I noticed that there was not really a great book about motivating young women, not just in sports, but in general. There were not many of those Mm -hmm. books. And I said to myself, who better than Pat Summit, who takes these players, many of whom are not, privileged people, let us say, has 100% graduation rate and wins national championships. That would be a very interesting book. So I wrote to her, which is, again, not what I usually mm-hmm. do. She wrote me back a polite letter and said, you know, I'm busy. And so that was fine. And then she won, a, I think it was like the fifth national championship. And I wrote her another letter and she wrote me back a nice letter and said, thank you very much. Then one day, Hillary, when she was first lady, had a luncheon for the 100 select women or something and my wife was invited and pat summit was invited Mm -hmm. and my wife who does not get involved in my business found herself um sitting next to pat summit and she said oh coach summit my husband loves you And (laughs) and so pat being pat said okay now, you have to realize, at this point in the season, they'd lost, I think, 12 games. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't even highly ranked. Okay. So Pat says to my wife, okay, next time we win a national championship, I'll do a book. They went undefeated and won the national championship. <laughs> and so I wrote her a letter, and I cut out this picture from USA Today, put uh-huh. it on the envelope, with her sort of screaming at somebody. And then I put a bubble, oh, no, not him again. <laughs> and she said, okay, I'm a person of my word, and we did the first there of three books all of which were big bestsellers Great. very cool up- yes passed away all too young in her 50s yeah one amazing woman she uh, she motivated those young women hundred percent graduation rate as I say eight national championships that is something to write home about
0: mm-hmm, and she mm-hmm. was
2: also a terrific force and and uh, charitable and mentoring and just Someone you had to really admire. Do you read for fun?
1: Do you have time to read for fun? I read,
2: well, just reading James Patterson can be a full-time job (laughs) because he does 12 a year. Uh, I read all my clients' books, as I say sometimes in advance, other times after they're published. Mm -hmm. And I try to read, I just read um, the one that's on the top of the fiction list. Uh, What is it, Crawdads? It's a beautiful piece of writing. Mm -hmm. I'm reading The Overstory, which won the uh, just won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, which I had no knowledge of, <laughs> but I bought because it won the prize, yeah. and it's really a magnificent piece of writing. And so I, uh, yeah, I read every night usually before I go to bed and uh, try to get through a lot of different stuff, mainly client material, mm-hmm. but I also mm-hmm. read other things too.
1: Mm-hmm. I believe you and Rita are very well traveled. Is there any vacation destinations? Do you have time for vacations? Yeah. Oh, where yeah. Do you we go when we, you go on we, vacation. We
2: go. We go to Italy. We go to England. We go to Nantucket. We go to the Hamptons. We go to San Francisco. Uh, we go to New Orleans, where we lived. Yeah, we go. We go mm-hmm. a lot of different places.
1: Okay. Any uh, uh, vacations coming up soon?
2: I now, at this stage of my life, spend every minute I can with my grandchildren. They are eight, five, and two. They oh, are my cool. life. And wherever they go, if they will take me, I go. <laughs> Last year, we took them to Argentina. This oh, year, wow. we took them to Spain. Cool. We try to take them somewhere big every year. Otherwise, we go see them or they come see us. Mm-hmm. And that's my priority.
1: Any other hobbies outside of politics or law um, or reading?
2: My my only real exercise is mood swings.
1: It's <laughs> uh, a full-time job. Yeah, I, d-
2: I actually do the treadmill. Okay. every day. Okay. Uh, not many hobbies, reading, uh, watching The Bachelor. I'm a big devoted okay. fan of Bachelor <laughs> and know. other such shows. <laughs> but my, mainly my hobby and my obsession is my grandchildren yeah, and yeah. my daughter and my son-in-law and my wife.
1: All right. Just to wrap up here, we talked about your time at UW focused on politics and law. Any fond memories of UW that you can share with listeners that aren't related to politics or law or things now, like that. Now, what
2: do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> Meeting my wife on October 15th, 1967. I
1: feel like that would top the do, list. Do good you answer. Do you think I would say anything <gasps> I different? Don't think to, so.
2: And it happens to be the truth. That's good.
1: Well, thanks, Bob. This has been an awesome podcast. Really, it's a pleasure to meet you. And thanks for all your hard work on our board of visitors and working with our political science department. Yeah, so it's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you.
2: you. Thank you for having me.